your first time, I also want to explain to you that we are going through the book of Acts, and we typically preach expositorily through the book of Acts, and we take a passage at a time. So this morning we are yet again in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 6. We'll be going through verses 8 through 15 this morning. It's really the, the first part of a two-part uh, look at Stephen, a two-part portrait of Stephen who is a godly servant. So we'll be reading verses 8 through 15. Next week, we'll be looking at chapter 7, and and Stephen gives us the longest sermon in the book of Acts. So turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15, and let us read God's holy, inspired word for us today. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against God and Moses. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him. And they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this portrait, this picture of your servant that is good for us to see. Lord, thank you that we can see a man, Lord, an otherwise ordinary man who was empowered by you, trusting in you, preaching your name, and standing strong in the midst of opposition. God, I pray that you would give us faith in you as a result of seeing Stephen. God, I pray that you would give us hope in the midst of any opposition we might be facing. Father, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of our hearts today, that we would receive exhortation, encouragement, conviction from you, and that we would respond to you and be changed. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may have been following the news lately in the northern town of Mosul in Iraq. The Islamic State, or the ISIS militants, they've been persecuting Christians, The Christians there were, about two weeks ago, given a a 10-hour ultimatum to either leave, convert to Islam, or be executed for your faith. Can't imagine a 10-hour ultimatum being given to us. Well, they destroyed Christian worship sites. They burned all of the books they could find. They've erected the black flag of ISIS in their place, signaling that they think that they've defeated Christianity. Families that fled, they were all robbed at gunpoint, and as they did, they were forced to flee on foot without food or without water. 
A man named Bashar Nasi Ben Ham, who left with his two children, said, There is not a single family that left that was not robbed. They took our money, gold, even the earrings from the ears. They took everything, even mobile phones. We don't know if we're going to go back. Now we have no idea if there can be a return. We don't know what our destiny is. They have even taken our houses in Mosul. After the deadline, the jihadists, they marked Christian homes with the Arabic letter in to signify that they were Nazarene. That's the way that they refer to Christians. What a badge of honor that is to be called after our Lord. They seized the property of their, in their homes as the property of the Islamic State for the crime of being Christians. It's unknown at this point how many Christians have been killed in Iraq, but there have been private and public executions and other horrific abuses documented. At one point in time, there were about a million and a half Christians in Iraq, and it was growing. Now it's estimated there are less than 50,000 Christians in Iraq. It doesn't end there. In Aleppo, Syria, eight Christians were crucified for the crime of apostasy against Islam because they had converted to Christianity. You know, that kind of persecution, that kind of unrest, it just seems unreal in our country. It seems so foreign, so far away. Yet we're called to pray for the persecuted church, to pray for those who are facing persecution and opposition. But it's not alone in other countries, although to even talk about persecution in our country seems paltry. It seems shallow. But I think the persecution we face is much more insidious, isn't it? It's, it's much more acceptable. And we can become kind of numb to it and give in to persecution in our country and opposition in our country because it's seemingly less blatant when we're facing different levels of opposition from legal attacks on our belief to opposition to schools or praying to graduation last year locally to opposition to form of hostility or mockery or maybe just being shunned and not accepted for our beliefs. Those are the subtle things that I think the devil tries to use to shut down Christianity, to shut us down, to get us to give up on the faith when we face opposition. We're tempted to not live for Christ overtly, aren't we? If you're honest with yourself. Last week I was out with a friend and he began to, to share the gospel with our waitress. And for just a brief moment, I thought, this is pretty uncomfortable. And I realized that that's all right. <laughs> it's, it's okay to be uncomfortable, to not worry about what the waitress thinks about me. In our country, we're tempted to not speak for Christ in our daily lives for fear of being opposed or ridiculed or looked down upon. I wonder what Stephen would say if he could interact with us today, if we could ask him some questions, if he could talk to us about our lives, since he was a man full of grace and wisdom in the Holy Spirit, Scripture says, I think he would probably encourage us. I think that we'd be called to revive our faith in God, to rely on the Holy Spirit to strengthen us, to enable us, to, to glorify God despite any opposition that we might face. After all, I think, I think Stephen was motivated by the grace of God and not legalism or guilt. So our, our goal this morning is not to induce legalism or guilt or condemnation or a sense of shame, 
But I do want us to be motivated by the amazing grace of God that we can see at work in the life of Stephen and to respond to God, to glorify God like Stephen glorified God in the midst of opposition and do that in our daily lives and be inspired as how Stephen was relying on the Spirit to glorify him despite whatever he faced. And he was about to face, next week we're going to see this a little more, he was about to face the ultimate test. I believe that God wants to speak to each and every one of us today. I don't think anyone of us is immune. Yes, I believe that some excel more at sharing the gospel with boldness. And I want to encourage that to continue. But I think all of us need to be reminded to not be ashamed to speak boldly, to proclaim his name, to not worry about the opposition that we face, to not worry about what people think about us. So I think this message is for all of us. It's for me, I know. And I believe that the picture that God would have us see today from this, this portrait of Stephen, this little snapshot in Scripture, you have to ask us, why is this picture here? Why is this portrait of Stephen here? And I believe that God would have it for our instruction. And I believe the main picture, the big picture that God would have for us to see is that a godly servant relies on the Spirit to glorify God despite opposition. That's what we see Stephen doing, isn't it? We see Stephen, he's referred to as a servant. He was serving tables. We see this godly servant, he's not relying on his own power. He's not relying on his own strength. He's not relying on his own own abilities. He's relying on the Spirit, and he's glorifying God despite the fact that he is facing real opposition. Just a few verses before the text that we read from today, Stephen was appointed by the apostles to serve in assuring the daily distribution of bread to the widows that was carried out with wisdom and with grace. And we don't know how exactly he and the other six men did that, but Luke just quickly wraps it up and said, yep, and assumes that they did well and the word of God continued, increased, and spread. The goal that he had been appointed to, why he had been appointed to serve, is so that the word of God would continue to spread and to increase. And now we see Stephen himself taking part in that. We're going to look at really three aspects, three aspects of a godly servant here from this scriptural portrait of Stephen. We're given a snapshot for reasons. Scripture doesn't say anything without cause. It doesn't paint us portraits of people like Stephen with no reason. And I believe that God would have us see these these three aspects, these three different views of the scriptural portrait from the life of Stephen. And really we're going to spend the bulk of our time on on the first one that we're going to see. And that that first aspect of the godly servant is that God's servant relies on God's power. God's servant, he relies on God's power. Look in verse 8, if you will, with me, please. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great things wonders and signs among the people. He was full of grace and power. This is not talking about Stephen's own power. He was full of the grace of God, and he was full of the power of God, and because of that, relying on that, he was doing great wonders and signs among the people as he trusted in God. Stephen was one of those seven men who was chosen to resolve that problem of the Hellenist widows being overlooked in the daily distribution of food and About this time, there were probably somewhere around between 20 and 30,000 Christians in the city of Jerusalem. That's a significant portion of the population. That was somewhere between a, a third to a half of the entire normal resident population of Jerusalem. So the scribes later, when they say that you've this word about Jesus is spread everywhere in the city, they're not lying when they're saying that. And this word had spread, but yet somehow. 
amongst 20,000 or so Christians, Stephen, along with the other six, stood out. How, how in the world was Stephen, one of these seven guys who we have never heard of before in the Bible, we don't have any preparation for him, we don't have any history about him prior to this, and yet somehow Stephen stood out amongst 20,000 of a man being of a good reputation. He stood out as being a man full of wisdom, full of the Spirit. We don't know much about him, but obviously he was a man of character and integrity. He was spiritually mature because he was full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. His name actually means victor's crown, and I, I love that. I love that because next week we're going to find out how he's going to receive the victor's crown as he gives his life for the sake of Christ. And how appropriate it is that he's about to receive the crown of a martyr, and, and God had him named that to prepare him, I think, for this moment. Chapter, in chapter 6, verse 5, it says to Stephen specifically, if you look down your Bibles with me, I don't have it on the overheads, but if you look in your Bibles, it says Stephen was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. So not only was he a man who was full of wisdom, he was full of the Holy Spirit, he was full of faith and full of grace. What a high accommodation for a man to receive from Scripture, for it to say about someone, anyone in Scripture, to have so many words stacked up. A man full of faith, a man full of grace, a man full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that that would be said of us. That would be full of faith and grace and wisdom and the Spirit and power. So what does it mean when it says, though, that he was full of faith? full of wisdom, full of grace, full of the Holy Spirit, full of power. What does it mean to be full of something? If I were to hit this glass of water here, and it, I bumped it out, I'm going to hit it a little bit lightly so I don't make a huge mess in the Marriott, but it is water. Um, what came out of the glass was, was water, because the glass was full of water. And so what was overflowing out of that glass was, was water. When it comes to people, to be full of something is to have something so characterize a person that they are said to be full of that thing. And people can be said to be full of all kinds of things. Like when someone's so full of rage or jealousy that they are controlled by rage or controlled by jealousy and they carry out what they are full of. Some people are so full of this jealous rage, they kill the people they're jealous of. Or somebody can said to be full of happiness or full of kindness or so that everything the person does is just characterized by kindness. So to said to be full of something is to be so characterized by that thing that you are, you are significantly or seemingly controlled by it. So I want to ask us this morning, what, what are you full of? What would people say that we're full of? And don't answer that out loud right now. Sometimes we can be full of ourselves and proud. Sometimes we can be full of resentment and bitterness. Sometimes, by God's grace, we can be so affected by the work of Christ and His Spirit that we are full of love and joy and peace and kindness and grace like Stephen was. So what are we known for? What do we want to be known for? What are are we striving to be full of by God's grace? By His activity, by His power, 
by his ability. You see, Stephen was so controlled by and filled with the Spirit that he demonstrated the fruits of the Spirit and he exhibited the gifts of the Spirit in his life. To be full of faith, as it says of Stephen, is to have your life so characterized by faith that everything you use is, is controlled by trusting in, relying upon, and believing in God. And, and it said that he was a man who was full of faith. He was a man who trusted God to do great things from him, and he stepped out in faith. It wasn't a passive faith. Where do we see Stephen? He goes from serving to immediately, he goes to preaching. Nobody's, nobody's calling him to do that besides God. You don't see the apostles saying, okay, now that you've done serving the tables thing, then why don't you, no, he was just looking for ways to serve. He was looking for ways to serve the word after he was serving tables, and he was looking for ways to step out in faith. And so we see him preaching, and great signs and wonders are being done through him. Even though he was facing opposition, where is he standing in this passage? He's standing before the council, the same council that condemned Jesus. These 71 elders that would have been gathered together from all over Israel to convene, to pass judgment. But we don't see that he's worried or afraid. Actually, at the end of the passage, we see that he was so full of of peace in the midst of these trying times that it was visible on his face. And not only that, it says he was full of grace. He was full of faith, and it says he's full of grace. He was so aware of God's grace and resting in God's grace that God's grace controlled him. And and to be full of grace means he was overflowing with grace towards others. At times, whatever flows from my own heart, it's it's self-righteousness. And I'm angry with my children and my wife and they don't do things the way that I, I think they should or the way that I want. I don't know if you ever experienced that. You've been full of self-righteousness thinking as if you are able to understand or do something on your own merit instead of by the power of God. Well, my heart in those times overflows with self-righteousness and anger. Those moments, I think it's because I'm not aware of God's grace Instead, think or act like I'm able to do or know things in my own power ability. But the reality is, it's only by the grace, it's only by the enabling power of God that I can know or do anything good. Moments like those where I'm getting angry, I need to become more aware. We all need to become more aware of the undeserved grace of God that we've received, that we didn't earn, that we can never earn, that we never will earn because Jesus has earned it. More than that, we, not only do we not earn God's grace, how do you become full of God's grace like Stephen? By meditating on the fact that not only we've not earned his grace, but we've earned something completely different. We've earned something completely different than God's grace. We've earned God's wrath. We deserve the exact opposite. We deserve the most horrific, abject punishment. We deserve the punishment that the Christians received in Iraq and far worse Yet despite what we deserve on our own, God has given Jesus what we deserve on the cross and all the punishment and suffering involved. Now instead, He's given us what Jesus deserved. All the approval, all the favor and acceptance that Jesus earned by living a perfect life. And if we grasp that, if we grasp that, if we get that, it will permeate our relationships and how we view others and I believe that we too can be said to be full of grace. That's what, that's what it's saying of Stephen. He was full of grace. 
he was so aware of, so filled with the grace of God that he was characterized by it. Let that be said of us as well, by God's enabling power. Not that we become acceptable to God, that's, that's the reverse of grace, but that we become so full of grace because we've received an ever, ever abundant measure of his favor and grace. I think God will use us even more powerfully as we're conformed into his image. And so we see that the Stephen was full of power that really flowed from being full of grace and full of faith. He's full of faith and awareness of God at work, so he's gracious. He was full of the Spirit, and so he was full of power. What does this mean? Well, this wouldn't, shouldn't surprise us, really. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples at the beginning of the book of Acts? Do you, do you remember that? Look back in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what we see here is the fulfillment of Acts 1-8, where Jesus promised that his disciples would receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Stephen was full of the Spirit, and so what was he experiencing? He was experiencing the power of God. He received the power of God. This power was also an answer to the prayer. Look back in Acts 4.29. In Acts 4.29 and 30, it said, the apostles here are praying, the disciples are gathering together and they're praying. They had faced opposition already and they're praying in response to that and they say, and now Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So, Stephen was a man who was so full of the Spirit that he was said to be full of, full of power. Luke states this matter-of-factly, doesn't he? As if he's not surprised. Stephen was a man full of power. You think, wait a minute, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't, he's not even called an elder here, a deacon. He's otherwise, he's an ordinary, previously unknown man. And he's just, he's a man who's full of power. Stephen had faith in God. He obeyed the Spirit, and he experienced the power of God in his life. I wonder today if many of us have lost a desire to be filled with the Spirit in this way. I want to kindle. I think, I think God would kindle in us a desire to be, Lord, I don't know if I'll ever do what Stephen's done, but Lord, may you work in me so that I am full of faith. God, would you work in me so I'm full of your grace? Lord, would you work in me so that I'm full of your wisdom? Lord, would you work in me so I'm full of your spirit? And Lord, would you work in me so I'm full of your power, your enabling? Lord, will we rest in you? Will we have power in you? I wonder how many of us pray like that. I wonder how many of us forget that God intends for us to be empowered through him. Maybe we need to go back if we've lost a sense of expectation these early disciples had, and, and say, Lord, fill me anew with your spirit. I need to be refreshed in you. All of us on our own lack power and ability. That's the whole point of why we do, so that we will turn to God for his enabling power. God intends for us to be weak so that we're not strong in ourselves, because that's the worst possible thing for us, is to be strong in our own selves, the best thing for us is to be weak in ourselves so we can be strong, truly strong in Him. Maybe we need to go back to seeing our great and mighty God in the book of Acts. 
not be so distracted by other things and the cares of the world or whatever it is, electronic media, that we're letting rob us of seeing God and Christ more clearly. Maybe we need to cry out to God like the disciples did in Acts 4 and and pray when we face difficulty and pray to God to fill us with the Spirit and work mightily through us and give us boldness like Stephen here has experienced. That's my prayer for us as a church. I'm crying out, Lord, would you look upon what we face and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and, Lord, do signs and wonders in the name of your holy servant Jesus so that your name and your word might spread. We can see Stephen's doing great signs and wonders. There's something else really remarkable in this chapter about Stephen, and I, and I, I want you to see it. It's actually something that's not there. The remarkable thing about Stephen is that there's no kind of title for him. He doesn't have any specific kind of title as an apostle or elder or deacon, and he's completely untitled. But this, this previously unheard of believer in Jesus, he is full of the Spirit and faith and wisdom and grace and power. That should give us hope. You know, it, I, don't, I don't think any of us are going to be written up in history books. That's not our goal. But it is our goal for us to say, Lord, might I glorify you in my body? Might I use my life to spread your word? Our lives are are just brief. They're but a passing vapor, Scripture says. And yet we have a great purpose that we've been given to make his name known. That's what Stephen was living for. I think this passage also, not only does it help us show, and we're going to see next week, we're going to be introduced to Saul of Tarsus, who would become Paul after his conversion. Not only is this, this two-parter, is it, is it given to us to show how the church is forced to disperse and introduce us to Paul and the gospel spread through opposition. I believe this portrait of Stephen is given so that we might have faith in God for, for ordinary people like us to do extraordinary things for him. Like an otherwise ordinary Stephen, he was used mightily, although briefly. If we want God to use us to see people change in our time and in our city, I believe we need to be people who are people of integrity, people of faith, people of wisdom and of grace, and people of the Holy Spirit. And so really, we need to be people who are experiencing and relying on God's power. You see, we don't have the ability in ourselves, no matter how much we strive and make effort, but relying on the enabling power of God I believe that that God is going to use us. But I want to give you a warning. The Scripture gives us this warning too. You're probably going to face some opposition of some kind. You're going to probably, people might not like you. People at work might think you're weird. People at school might reject you. You might not be cool. When you speak up for Jesus, you might face opposition. So we see here a second aspect of a godly servant that Scripture shows us in the portrait of Stephen, it's really that God's servant faces opposition. And we can see this not only in the passage we have this week, but next week he faces the ultimate opposition. Look down in verse 9, it says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, those Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. And that, that raising up, that raising up is a kind of a rising up in opposition. 
Stephen was facing this, this great wall of opposition, this, this army of opposition from this widespread range of people. In case you're wondering who, who the freedmen are, well, earlier on in Jewish history, the Emperor Pompey, he'd made some Jewish captives and, and took them to Rome, and they were later set free, and although they continued to make Rome their home, they, they referred to themselves as the freedmen, or libertines, to distinguish themselves from, from free Jews who moved to Rome on their own accord. And so what they would do, and what people from other countries would do, is because they were looked down upon, the Jews did not like people from other backgrounds and ethnicities. They saw them as being tainted, even though these, these men who were freedmen, they were there not because they wanted to be originally, they were taken to Rome. The, the Jews would look down on people from different backgrounds, and so they were minimally accepted. Yes, you're Jews, but not quite all the way. You're tainted by, by, by other languages and dresses and culture. And so all of these people would create their own synagogues in Jerusalem. And so that's what we see here is people coming from these different synagogues. Maybe it's one or two or three, but we don't know exactly how many, but these different synagogues, these different backgrounds, these different ethnicities of Jews. Something interesting here is that Stephen was a Hellenist as well. His, his name is a Hellenistic name. It's, it's not a traditional Jewish name. And so what these people who are facing him, what they all have in common is that they probably were not completely accepted in Jewish society. They probably were on the verge of feeling like outcasts, and they didn't want to be complete outcasts. And so when they saw Stephen, when they heard him preaching these things, they thought, oh no, we're going to be labeled with him. He's a Hellenist like us, and we need to make sure that we're not lumped in together with him because that's going to mean persecution for us. That's going to mean that People are going to assume, Jews are going to assume that that's what we think. Maybe he was primarily trying to minister to his Hellenist brothers, and that's why they rose up against him. Maybe they were concerned about being associated with him and caused social difficulty. Whatever the reason, it was his own people groups that rose up and disputed with Stephen. And then we see in in a few verses, next week we're going to look at it in more detail, we see that Saul of Tarsus from the area of Cilicia. He, he, was, he was probably in this group. It says those from Cilicia. That's, that's, Tarsus was the capital city of, of Cilicia. So it's likely that he was amongst that group who rose up to dispute with Stephen. And, and I wonder if this was the first time that Paul encountered the gospel and gospel seeds were planted. Later on in Acts 11, we can see that God brought good fruit from the persecution of Stephen. Look in Acts 11, 19, it says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyrus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. What did God do? He turned this opposition from people in those regions, these very regions in Acts 11. He turned opposition from people in those regions to, to really God conquering that opposition. As he, he carried the gospel out to those regions where those people were from. And the gospel spread. God was not hindered. His power was not thwarted. God's word spread. We can't be sure how they were born again, but it's, it's good to see that Scripture specifically mentions men of Cyrus and Cyrene continued the ministry of Stephen, really, and, and preached the Lord Jesus to the Greeks. And In our text, though, Stephen would not have known that all of this would happen. Stephen didn't know that. 
He didn't know that God would redeem. He didn't know that God would turn opposition on its head and that he would actually make the gospel spread in those very areas where these men were from. Stephen couldn't see that. He might have hoped for that, but he couldn't have foreseen what would happen. He didn't know that some of the people in the crowd who were opposing him would be converted, would become Christians. So often we don't know how God might use the opposition that we face to spread the good news of Jesus. We don't know. We don't know the people who are opposing us, what kind of seeds God's planting, what he'll do later on, how he'll make his word spread. But we can know that we are called to preach Jesus. We can trust that God will use our words even when we face opposition from our own camp, from our own people, maybe from your own family, from your own hometown. That's what got to be one of the hardest things to do is to go back to your old hometown and your old high school after 20, 30 years and if you weren't a Christian to profess faith or maybe even worse, if you professed being a Christian but you didn't live like it. I know for me, it's like, I don't, I don't know that I really want to go back to my high school reunion 25 years ago, you know, because I, I professed Christianity but didn't live like it. Now I've got to own up. Yeah, I was a hypocrite, but God's transformed me. We can face all kinds of opposition. We don't know how God will use it, but we are called to preach Jesus when we face opposition. We can have faith that God will use whatever seeds of the gospel we sow. Now skip down to verse 11 with me, if you will. We're going to pass over verse 10 and come back to it in just a moment. Look at look in verse 11. It says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Why were they doing that? Why were they being secret? Because they couldn't withstand the wisdom with the Holy Spirit that he was speaking so they turned to lies, they turned to deceit. They said he spoke blasphemy against Moses and God. And you see, the Jews thought that since then God delivered the law through Moses, that to speak against Moses would be blasphemy. To say that Moses was not the answer would be blasphemy. To say that Moses gave us something partial would be blasphemy in their eyes. Maybe Stephen had said something like, true salvation is through Jesus alone and not through the law. They would have heard that as being blasphemous instead of hearing his words. Maybe he said Moses could never bring salvation fully to the Jews, but Jesus has brought salvation once and for all. Our great high priest, apart from the law, whatever it was, he said, though, they twisted it. They turned it around on him. They instigated men to make false accusations against him. And this is often the case when the gospel goes forth. When the word of Jesus Christ is preached in power, when God is working on people's hearts, it's often the case that people will turn to subversive tactics. We should expect it to be the case whenever we preach the word of God to face opposition, that, that people might twist to our word. They might, they might turn to instigating people against us and make false accusations. But wasn't our Lord Jesus falsely accused? Wasn't he killed by dishonest, lying men? It wasn't it Jesus in, in John 15? Look, look in your Bibles. I think we have it over here on your overhead for you as well. John 15, verse 18. This is Jesus saying, If the world hates you, he doesn't just say rejects you, dislikes you. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, 
but I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. For us today, we can be tempted to want the approval of the world, can't we? That's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous desire because if the world loves us as its own, what does that mean? It means we're of the world. But like Stephen didn't bow before his own people when they argued with him. Instead, he spoke with godly wisdom. He relied on the Spirit. He was not loving the world. He was loving God, and the world did not love him. If there are areas where the world is loving you, be concerned. Now, don't don't be a jerk. I don't mean that. But be concerned if you're living for the love and approval of the world. And remember If Christ has chosen you out of the world, the world will hate us. Well, the men who opposed Stephen, they said they couldn't withstand what he said. So they turned to attack him through lies and through deceit, and they persecuted him because he was not of this world's kingdom. He belonged to the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God. So the world hated him. He was persecuted like Jesus was persecuted. And maybe Luke was thinking of this when he penned the book. Someone once compared Jesus and Stephen and showed that there's, there's ten similarities in the persecution they faced and the opposition that they faced. And, and maybe it's one of the reasons why we have this account recorded for us to show us that it's expected that servants of Jesus will be rejected and persecuted for the name of Jesus Christ. What we don't see in this account of Stephen or what follows in his murder is any kind of denial. Stephen did not deny. He didn't back down. He didn't didn't do what ISIS was telling Christians to do. He didn't reject. He He didn't say, okay, you're wrong. In the face of opposition, he was steadfast. He didn't try to get himself out of things that we're going to see next week. He endures false accusations. Like the disciples, though, just a few verses after that scripture that I read to you a moment ago in John 15. In John 16, 1, Jesus says to the disciples about being persecuted, He says, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So He said these things so that we wouldn't be surprised. When you face persecution, when you face opposition, when you face persecution in your own life, take courage. That means He's chosen you. The world doesn't love you because He loves you. He says, I wrote these things to you. I said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Stephen was put out. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Boy, we're going to see that next week, aren't we? And they will do these things, in verse 3, because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He's written these things to us so that we might have heart. We might not fall away. 
when you're tempted to fall away because of opposition, when you're tempted to fall away because of what people think about you, remember whose you are. No doubt some people heard what Stephen had to say and believed in Jesus. But it's clear in verse 12 that these men did not. So verse 12 it says, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. The people who opposed him, they turned to secretly instigating the people and the elders and the scribes. Earlier, the people had been on the side of the apostles so much that the Sanhedrin said, we, we want to do this quietly so that they don't, the people don't stone us. But now things have changed. The people have now turned and been turned against Stephen. So those who are, who are accepting for real have been differentiated. God has, God has purified His church. He's separated things out. And the result is these people who turned against Him, they came upon Him violently. That's what this, this word means when it says it came upon Him. That's a violent picture. That's not like, oh, they came up and said, hey, Stephen, how are you doing? By the way, come with us. No, they came upon him. They pounced upon him. They, they, like, like a lion would pounce upon prey, they came upon him and they seized him by force. And they, they brought him, and that word brought him is unwillingly. They drug him. They brought him before the council, these same Sanhedrin who had wrongly accused Jesus. They would have held the power in Jerusalem. The Roman rulers of Judea would have given the Sanhedrin power to to execute the most important cases and also the ability to pronounce the death sentence, but capital punishment, it wouldn't have been valid unless it was confirmed by the Roman procurator. Now we're going to see next week that it wasn't confirmed because the rage got the better of them. Before they could even get approval, they went and killed them on their own. But the people weren't daunted. Look in verse 13. It tells us they're so full of hatred. It says, And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. You know, the only thing they got right there is that he never ceased. (laughs) The rest, they were twisting. They were lying. He probably would have talked about what he likely heard Jesus say, though, that one day this physical temple will no longer be necessary. But they didn't hear that good news. They didn't hear Stephen if he told them that Jesus has fulfilled the function of the temple. He is now our our prophet, our high priest, our king. No longer do we need the system of the law. No longer do we need... This, this temple system with sacrifices, no longer do we require a high priest because Jesus has become our great high priest, because Jesus has become the temple through which we enter into God's presence. Jesus is the way that we enter into the throne room of God. No longer is the temple necessary. I imagine Stephen would have been preaching those things. And he didn't want to change the customs. He was, he was not changing the theology. He was to change... In the type and the shadow, these, the type and the shadow of the temple, they were never meant to last in perpetuity. It was, they, they were always meant to point to the Messiah who would deliver them from the curse of the law and deliver them fully into God's presence. That's what they longed for. That's what they were wanting. Now every man, every woman, every person is able to come freely into the throne room into the presence of God through the temple of Jesus Christ, by our great high priest, Jesus Christ, through the ultimate prophet, the one who tells us of God. 
Stephen would have known this, that Jesus provides this ultimate way to enter into God's presence through His own body and no longer all these trappings and shadows necessary. Instead, we can see God's presence through Him and through the merits of His life applied to us as we experienced this morning as we remembered communion. What are we remembering when we're doing that? We're remembering His body broken for us was the perfect sacrificial lamb so no sacrifices needed any longer. What are we remembering in His blood in this, as we drink the juice that no longer do we need the old covenant with the systems and sacrifices but now through the one sacrifice we've been brought near. He brings us to the throne of grace fully and finally and yet they were twisting the words of Stephen, these words of the gospel, these words of grace. And by the way, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to hear these words. That you can't merit any favor before God. You can't be good enough. None of us can. None of us have been. None of us ever will be good enough on our own. But Jesus was perfect for us. You can never atone for all the bad things you've ever done, no matter how much good you do. You can't offset that. The karma is nonsense. But Jesus has done perfectly for us what we could never do. And there's real hope there, but they did not hear that hope. I hope you hear the hope this morning. There's no longer any need for this priestly system of the temple because Christ is our true great high priest. He's our sacrificial lamb. He makes us one with God. His accusers refused to listen to that truth and said they twist his words. And they said he's going to destroy the temple. Scripture shows that Stephen is still standing strong, though. He's standing strong in the Spirit. And that's the third thing we're going to look at, the third aspect of a godly servant we see from this portrait of Stephen. In this portrait of Stephen, we can see that a godly servant, a God's servant, stands strong in the Spirit. Stephen is not standing in the face of this opposition, in the face of them twisting his words. He's not standing in his own ability, his own strength. He's standing strong in the Spirit. Verse 10 says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. If you've ever seen those people who go out in the midst of a hurricane and they go out to the coast and they, 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 they're going to ride the waves of the storm and then sometimes this massive wave comes along and it sweeps them away. They're not able to withstand the, the torrent, the storm and and that's kind of the, the picture here. They're not able to withstand the spirit with which he was speaking, the wisdom of the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen was speaking strong in the spirit, and they weren't able to withstand this, this tidal wave of, of power and effectiveness that the Holy Spirit brings because the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts. The Holy Spirit is the one who convinces. And so Stephen was standing strong in the strength of the spirit. He wasn't using worldly wisdom. He was speaking with the wisdom of God's Word. He was speaking enabled by the Holy Spirit. And for us, let that be something we remember as we face opposition, that we don't stand in our own strength, in our own power, and our own ability. We, we stand strong in the Holy Spirit. He's the one who convicts. He's the one who convinces. He's, he's the one who will make arguments unable to withstand. He's the one who gives wisdom and grace. Earthly wisdom, religious wisdom, doesn't overcome opposition. Wisdom from God, wisdom that trusts and relies and the giver of all wisdom. It's the kind of speech that will stand when everything else falls apart. So instead of giving up and giving in, where do we see Stephen in this portrait? 
We see him, he's, he's continuing to stand and speak when people rose up against him. He was so full of the Spirit and wisdom and the grace of God, he continued to speak about Jesus. You might be tempted to think about Stephen and say, you know, what, what, if, what if he just kind of like backed off a little bit? Wouldn't that have been a little bit better? Wouldn't it have been easier for him if he just quieted down? Stephen, don't be so bold. Stephen, don't be so brash. Don't just keep preaching in their faces. If they're not listening, they just, just go away. Stephen, when you're facing opposition, don't stop preaching because clearly that's not, God's not using you anymore. We don't see that. Think of all the great things that he could have said and done. But that's not the case. Stephen knew he couldn't be silent, knew he had to share the good news about Jesus. He kept on speaking for Jesus, even when he was opposed because he was relying on the Holy Spirit. And it was so obvious. It was, it was obvious even to his accusers. Look down at verse 15, and here's where we'll end. It says, And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The council was watching him. They were looking at him. They were thinking, how will he react to these charges? What will he do? How will he react? What will he look like? Will he be angry? Will he be indignant? It says when they stared at him, it was like they were looking at the face of an angel. What does that mean? What does that mean? His face was the face like the face of an angel. I think it means that God bestowed his own glory on Stephen so that his, his face shone brightly like the face of an angel. The face of an angel shines with the brightness of the glory of God. You see, in, in the New Testament, when angels appear, they shone with the glory and the brightness of God. He was so full of the glory of God that it was visibly evident that God was for Stephen and not against him. And it, what a beautiful moment. God was saying, in the midst of opposition, in the midst of false charges, God was saying to the rulers and leaders of Israel, the people who were supposed to lead God's people to holiness and righteousness, and truth were leading people away. And God was validating Stephen and saying, you are wrongly accusing him. And here, I'm going to show that he's my servant by making his face be like the face of Moses. I don't think it's without, without reason that we have this here. I think that, that God was showing us that the only other person we know of in Scripture whose face shone like that was Moses, who brought the law. Now, Stephen is bringing grace and truth and the gospel. And his face is shining like the face of an angel. His face is giving away the fact that this new covenant that he spoke of, it's blessed by God in front of the whole council of Israel. Our faces are probably never going to shine, more than probably. Our faces won't ever shine like Stephen's, except perhaps on that day when we behold his face. But we can have faith in God to use otherwise ordinary people like he used Stephen, like us. For his glory today. Doesn't that our desire? Don't you, don't you want to shine forth his glory? Don't you want to show who he is? Don't you want to display and let your life be a display of the goodness and grace and mercy of God? Don't you want your life to be a testimony to the gospel? You know, a lot of things can be written about us. I saw a video this past week that said we're all headed towards our death. Stephen was headed towards his death. We're going we're to hear about that next week. This was right, he was headed towards his death. And yet he was doing what was most valuable and important. He was glorifying God, proclaiming his name, demonstrating his grace and faith. 
What will be said of us? What are we full of? What will be said of us before we die? What do we want people to see in us by God's grace, by His Holy Spirit, by His enabling power? Because I believe this is not, it's not something foreign for us. Now, we're not going to all be called to die a martyr's death, but we are all called to, to live our lives preaching and spreading God's word, proclaiming the good news, demonstrating His grace, all by His enabling power. So we can take heart as we speak God's word and share the good news about Jesus, that God will accomplish His work no matter what opposition we face. We can trust God. Maybe you've been convicted this morning. Let there be no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But instead say, oh Lord, Thank you that you forgive me for all my frailties, for all my failings, for all my weakness. You don't hold that against me. And thank you, God, that you empower and enable ordinary people. So, Lord, would you give me faith and let us cry out, Abba, Father, give me faith. Give me your grace. Enable me by your spirit. Give me more of your spirit so I might be empowered by you to stand for you and fear no opposition. I'm going to pray, and as I pray, let the band go ahead and come up. Father, thank you for this portrait of Stephen. Thank you for this picture that is a compelling picture. God, I pray that you would give us faith, that, Lord, we are ordinary people. We're, there's, not, there's not any merit in us. But, God, thank you that you've given us your extraordinary message, your life-changing message, that we don't have to be who we've been, Lord. By your transforming power, we can be who you're calling us to be by your enabling grace, by your Holy Spirit. So, so Father, I pray that you would, you would burn away the dross in our lives, that you would enable us to live for you, that, Lord, we would set aside every weight and snare which so easily entangles, and we'd run with endurance the race that's set before us. God, I pray that we would trust on your great power, Oh, great God, give us faith, give us hope. Lord, we could never earn favor. Lord, we don't want to respond to try to earn merit or because we feel guilty. Lord, we want to respond, Lord, because we've got new life in you. We have hope in you.